This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. D-Wave chases 5,000 qubits. And a look at HPC and AI in the life sciences. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership with HPC Wire. I'm Addison Snell with Intersect 360 Research, and I'm joined today by John Russell, editor at HPC Wire. John, your first time on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for the invitation. Glad to be here. We're, we wanted to get you on here because you covered some of this week's top stories this week in HPC, John. And one I was particularly interested in is we've got an update on D-Wave. We've been talking a lot about Intel and uh, Google and IBM in, in the quantum space. But D-Wave, which was kind of the first company that, that, that was pushing quantum forward, we hadn't heard from in a while. But now we've got a big update from them in terms of a next generation system architecture. It's interesting you put it that way. I think that's that's a, a fair statement. We haven't heard as much recently. And what they did, if you hadn't heard, um, was to roll out a preview of an 18-month plan that will end up with this sort of comprehensive platform that uh, will produce a 5,000-qubit processor machine. So actually, it was an important announcement. Uh, they're talking about a new underlying technology reduced noise, increased connectivity, and that's the result of a new topology I'll talk about in a second, uh, and expanding the tool set. So for them, uh, I think you're maybe correct in, in sensing that perhaps it was a chance to get become part of the conversation a little more prominently again, given what we heard from IBM and Intel recently. But it's also important on its own, on its own, frankly. The, uh, they have delivered it. D-Wave, I'm sure you know, is really the only only quantum computer manufacturer I know of that has actually sold machines and put them on other people's premises. Uh, and maybe there's one in one of the, in a couple of the experimental labs, the national labs from IBM, not sure about that. But uh, so they're ahead, uh, as you have said, it's, it's definitely a pioneer. The latest announcement um, is pretty interesting. Uh, the biggest part of it is this new technology, which will uh, sort of enable reduce noise, also enables this increased connectivity. So they're having a new topology called Pegasus, which in which each qubit is attached to or connected to, I believe it's 15 other qubits. That's a big jump. The, the prior one, the prior Chimera uh, topology was one qubit to six others or five others. I don't have that number in front of me, but um, by making this uh, increase in connectivity, uh, that's a big thing. That allows you to, to tackle a much bigger problem with fewer qubits, a more complicated uh, problem with fewer qubits as well. So the idea here is that if we're looking for a, an edge at which com, you know, quantum computing can tackle real-world problems in a meaningful way, this, this may be perhaps enough uh, of an advance. So... Yeah, a good good move on their part. It's probably worth looking a little bit at at D-Wave's progress to date. It's a little different, as you know, from the gate-based model. So it's a mistake, perhaps, to think of the IBM machines and the Google machine and the Microsoft approach, all of which are gate-based in the same way. They all work on quantum technology, for sure. They all use superpositioning. Uh, which is a mystery to most of us. But D-Wave, unlike the others, is not one where you program the way you would program a classical computer. You're not 
having a sequence of instructions and gates that uh, you specify and then are executed per se. Instead, what you're doing is you're describing your problem in a way that is sort of maps to the, the computer itself. And then the computer, once you start it, um, sort of seeks all of these paths at once. It's not, uh, so it's a little different. Uh, one way to think of it is, um, you know, sort of water going through a glass of pebbles, right? If you pour some water across the top, all that little water can go, can follow very many paths at once to the bottom of the glass. Um, and if you did that 10,000 times, 9,000 times, the path at the bottom reached first would likely be the path of least resistance. Well, it's somewhat similar for um, you know, this adiabatic annealing uh, quantum computing. You run a problem very many times and it's got some, some sort of layer of probability around it where you'll get the right result. And if you do it 10,000 times and 9,000 times, this one result uh, occurs, that's likely to be with a high probability or whatever the probability distribution is, the correct result. So it's a little different. It's a different approach. On the other hand, you can do some pretty interesting things with that. You can do very many important maximization or minimization problems using that technique. And that's what they've done. And so they've got you know, over, um, I believe it's a, a hundred customers or so, excuse me, a hundred applications they're talking about. You know, there's some debate whether those are real applications. And I think uh, that's probably reasonable. But all of that aside, uh, D-Wave has got this, this map now that we can look at. And truthfully, we'll all be watching to see, do they, um, does D-Wave produce in a timely way? So when will we see the expanded tool set? Uh, to some extent, that's happened with the announcement. You can now play with this new topology, this Pegasus topology with increased connectivity by um, using a piece of their tool set. Um, and then soon to come will be the reduced technology, and they're going to implement that on their current 2,000 qubit machine, which again, you'll be able to sort of reach through their cloud. Their cloud platform is called Leap. And then after that, um, more of the tools and more of the technology will emerge, most of it, I think, online at first. And eventually, there'll be a 5,000 qubit machine that you could, you know, if you wish, purchase from them and put on premises. There's a ton going on with this. And first is the 5,000 qubits is a, is a huge uh, number that they're going after. You pointed out they're more than doubling from 2,000 to 5,000. Now, that's an extraordinary number in terms of what we've been talking about in terms of some of the other gate-based approaches that we've talked about, where we, right. you, you hear this phrase quantum supremacy uh, being reached in the neighborhood of 50 qubits because every qubit you add doubles the number of paths that we can look at. It's not clear to me that with this adiabatic annealing architecture that's different from the gate-based architecture, that that's happening in exactly the same way. So I don't know how to relate a 2,000 or 5,000 qubit system from D-Wave to the power of a uh, theoretical 50 qubit system from IBM or Google or, or, or Intel. But your point is valid that in either case, what you're doing is starting from a relatively low energy state and then um, exploring a number of different paths in order to seek a different low energy state. And the, the big applications that we see in that are areas like 
um, uh, structural mechanics or potentially protein folding. Even cryptography, which is a famous one that people like talking about, is certainly an example where you start with one low energy state, which is a, a message to be decrypted. You explore a vast realm of different possibilities in order to reach one other low energy state, which is a decrypted message. Protein folding is basically the same way. You have a, you have a starting position and you're trying to reach a low energy finish position, but you're looking at all of the different ways that the protein can, can fold through the fluids in order to reach that low energy state. So in it, it's an exciting area with real world applications, but as you point out, there's, uh, the applications have to be written, right? Developing for quantum is still in a nascent state here. Exactly. I think um, so. I think that this announcement from D-Wave is is a is a substantive announcement, and that the plans laid out um, are very interesting. So all of that to the good. Um, it's a little bit again. I think of um, hey, we're still here as well because we haven't heard as much from them recently. But you know, I wonder about the, the five thousand qubit uh, doubling is important. I agree uh, because the sheer number of qubits certainly is a factor. But the this connectivity number, this this interconnectivity, this uh, increase there is very important because that really de defines the the way in which you present the problem, uh, and it allows them to tackle much bigger problems. And those problems might finally venture into the uh, the kind of commercial ones you're talking about now, whether it's protein folding or um, you know materials kind of exploration yep. materials for uh, batteries for example things like that so i'm looking forward to see how it, how it all rolls out uh, one thing that i think is interesting a little bit like uh, ibm with its q platform is they have made it easy to use their leap cloud platform and i think the cloud as a vehicle for access to these systems and learning tools is smart on all their parts as a way to jumpstart the developer community but with Leap, as I understand it, you can get uh, a minute of free time on a quantum processor. And, uh, and a minute is, they say, 400 to 4,000 experiments. So it's not so it's just the time on the processor itself. You can use as much time as needed with all of the tools and examples there. And if you're willing to share your result, uh, that is to put whatever it is you accomplish in open source, then they will give you a minute uh, a month for free on an ongoing basis. If you want more, I think it's $1,000 or $2,000 for an hour uh, a month. Uh, and again, smart move. Now, if, if we'll have to see how it works. At the end of a year and a half, will we have someone who holds up their hand and says, hey, you know, we've got this algorithm slash application we've run that's demonstrated faster, more accurate uh, predictions of protein folding, for example. And that will make a difference. I think the quantum, chasing the quantum advantage as opposed to quantum supremacy is is a smarter move, however you, you describe it. So I think it's an important announcement uh, that we will, uh, that we'll certainly be tracking and it will be interesting to see, uh, you know, how quickly, so how quickly does the reduce noise uh, sort of actually get into the existing systems. So I was talking with um, Alan Barrett, who's the executive vice president for R&D and the chief product officer at D-Wave. And one of the interesting things he said was, look, you know, these uh, advances we're talking about, I realize we're previewing them now, but they're not just in design. We have taken 
all of these things, the new fundamental technology node, which is how they fabricate the chip. Um, and uh, we've put them all in a, in a couple of our 2000 qubit machines and we have them running in the lab. So we know it works. We're seeing the results we expected. And now uh, we feel very confident that we'll be able to roll out these advances along this sort of cadence we're outlining. So to me, that's, you know, that's encouraging. It'll be fascinating to watch. Um, and I'm sure, you know, it's a vigorous community now, as you've mentioned some of the players earlier, everyone, Intel, IBM, Microsoft, uh, Google, we're all watching what each other is doing. They're all watching what each other is doing um, to see who first can approach this sort of uh, quantum advantage, because that's likely to be, I think, uh, an important moment. There will be at least a handful of companies with the resources to then use it to attack whatever the problem is. I'm looking forward to seeing when that occurs. Also this week in HPC, John, you've got a two-part series that's been on HPC Wire looking at HPC and life sciences, including uh, really looking at how much of AI and cloud is hype versus reality in life sciences right now. A fabulous area. I mean, AI... I've written about AI um, so many times over the past couple of years that we're all a little tired of hearing about it. And the problem with that is that it's a real thing. It, it, it is absolutely transformative. And that was sort of the response I got from, I, we every year, HPCY, every year for the last few years, HPCY talks with Bioteam, uh, which is a, a very prestigious uh, life sciences specialists in research computing. They, for example, helped NIH redesign the uh, BioWolf cluster, I think twice, and they may be working with them again. But in any case, we talk about what's the state of HPC use in, um, in life sciences, and it has grown. That's not a secret. One of the topics was AI this year, and, and here's the comment, and I'll just read it to you. I get a kick out of this from, uh, from Berman. He says, every vendor is selling AI. I think it has become the gluten-free tag of life sciences because it is everywhere. Putting gluten-free on bacon packages. Why would you do that? Of course, bacon is gluten-free. I sort of see it like that. People have used it as a marketing gimmick to catch your eyes. So that's kind of his expression of, of exasperation, which I think is shared. We are all hearing it. On the other hand, he then quickly pointed out two areas where it's making an enormous distance uh, difference right now. One of them is in uh, pathology reports. So interpreting the images where it used to be an individual pathologist looking at screens and, and radiologies and x-rays. Now um, machine learning using past results has improved the accuracy and speed of that rather dramatically. So it's, you know, it's not a, a little thing there. And likewise in various uh, microscopy technology, uh, particularly what's called uh, cryo electron microscopy and also lattice sheet microscopy. Both of those areas are very complicated and AI, basically deep learning, deep learning um, networks uh, is used to sort of find the areas of interest, um, unravel those things. You wouldn't be able to, to uh, use those tools and the size of the data sets they're trying to um, sort their way through without AI, in this case, deep learning, which is really what we're talking about here. So yeah, it, it certainly opens up whole new areas of applications across all of the different HPC vertical markets. And we talked on a previous episode of This Week in HPC about it being a different style of application that takes you away from 
things that are necessarily deterministic, A plus B equals C, uh, into areas that are more experiential. And if you combine uh, the deterministic computing, the probabilistic computing like Monte Carlo simulations and the experiential computing, machine learning kinds of things that tend to be done in lower precision, what we really find is a movement toward AI augmented HPC. We talked previously with Stanford Med on this podcast about combining HPC AI and big data to do a predictive medicine application with uh, an abdominal aortic aneurysm, which is a leading cause of death in, in Western countries. So you know, it's that kind of combination of, of AI and HPC that we really look forward to seeing more of this year. No, absolutely. Um, and both of those technology, well, the first two technologies are image processing, but it's branching out, you know, and I think it will be adopted soon. There's a, you know, there are a bunch of projects ongoing. Microsoft has this project handover to develop a machine using natural language to process all of the cancer papers that are out there and help um, with diagnosis. There's, you know, there. The uh, CDC, I believe, is using deep learning to help its efforts in determining the right vaccines for this year's flu, for example. So it's already um, happening in terms of late stage research on on applications. They're not most of those applications are not in in use yet, but they're they're moving towards it. So within the life sciences, anyway, it's it's a big thing. I think one of the interesting things in life science is that most of the researchers there are really not computer scientists first. They're, they're domain scientists interested in their area. And that's translated to the folks who maybe care a little less about what's underneath the computer hood, if you will, you know, is give them an interface that they understand that describes a problem in terms that they're familiar with, and that's enough. So Interestingly, that's um, played a role in HPC writ large as it's adopted by the life sciences community. And there are sort of two different slices. In the enterprise world, it's very, uh, they're very conservative. So they're using, you know, Intel chips and nobody even, no one cares really whether it's an AMD or whether someone's going to go to power. There's very little concern around that. Really, these, this is a conservative budget cycle, three or four years constrained group that just want things that work in an interface. So even though they don't know it, um, they're not always aware of whether or not they have, uh, they're using heterogeneous computing architectures that rely on GPUs, for example. That's consistent with research that we've done, research studies that we've done that show that uh, people really don't care what the underlying architecture is, but it has to work and it has to carry their software forward. The, the increasing complexity of the computational environment certainly provides some uh, some additional challenges with that. You can get the full two-part series of HPC and Life Sciences by John Russell on HPC Wire. I want to make one other quick mention of a story we don't have time to cover on this week's podcast, but uh, Tiffany Trader wrote up a story on HPC Wire this week that Panassas has secured another round of funding and uh, introduced new board members, which includes Jorge Tittinger, previously the CEO of SGI. A really fascinating story, John. I, I think that uh, Tiffany's got a pretty good handle on the storage technology world. I agree. Uh, the whole NAS community and its attempt to remain uh, very relevant in a world where you know storage is moving uh, quickly in some ways, and sometimes it doesn't get the attention it deserves. So uh, 
Uh, I agree. A good story to watch, uh, separating the, the PNFS file system from strictly being on Panassis devices, also probably a wise thing to do. Right. That PANFS, breaking that out in the Ultra product, we talked about that recently in Panassas's most recent launch. I'll be seeing Tiffany at the upcoming Rice Oil and Gas HPC workshop, which is next week in Houston. We'll have some updates from that. Also, to be on the lookout, one of HPC Wire's people to watch from 2019, Lori Dyson of the Exascale Computing Project, is going to be giving one of the major addresses at that conference. So Tiffany and I will be back next week uh, with some updates from Houston and the uh, Lori Dyson talk. It should be an interesting conference. I'm sorry, I'm not going to go. I know that Tiffany will be there and you are as well. So enjoy. All right. Thanks, John. It was great talking to you. And thanks to you for tuning in. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.